0: Let me tell you a story, podcast number forty-seven.
1: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It It is a truth long universally acknowledged. You don't know about show. me without you. Welcome
2: to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors.
0: Hi, this is Steve.
1: Hi, this is Becky. We haven't done a kid chuckle in a while, so let's start with that. We have three children... Uh, Lisa, Toby, and Brady—that's what these kid chuckles are all about. Or they're the source of the chuckles. And today is Toby's birthday, so it's fun to read these uh, little quotes from thirty-some years ago. Uh, the first one. Uh, let's see. This one is by Elisa. She was probably about five at the time. She said. Can we have some food in the back seat so we can pig in? And then a quote by Toby, who was um, probably three, I don't know where my nickel went. It just wanted to go away. Later, um, again in the car, Elisa and Toby saw me coming toward the car and told Steve, their dad, here comes The Mommy. About that time, Toby so sweetly pasted pictures um, his original art on the wall just for me. Elisa wore a new white dress on Sunday to church and said it was so comfortable that it made her feel like crossing her legs. At that time in her life, she called mannequins hard people. And Toby, who did not like my new haircut, said, Why do moms always have short hair? And one last conversation between the two. I heard Toby say, Hot news to Elisa. She laughed and laughed.
0: Here's something from David Roper, a commentary. It's called... Tolkien reminds us to look beyond the surface. Back in the 1860s, a prospector named Captain Tom Morgan filed a claim on a hard-to-find drainage in the mountains northeast of Boise and rode into town claiming he had discovered over $50,000 worth of gold. After a legendary spending spree, his gold was discovered to be chemically enhanced iron pyrite fool's gold. Captain Morgan was never caught, nor was he ever seen again, but his skullduggery is memorialized in the name the sight bears to this day, Bogus Basin, and proves again that Shakespeare was right. All that glitters is not gold. We know the proverb and we know the truth, for we've all been fooled by those who shimmer and shine, but whose hearts are dark and deceitful. We've learned that outward beauty can be an overlay, a facade, an affectation that conceals evil, self-serving motives. It's good to be wary of those who look good, uh, who look good, too good to be true, for often we discover that they are. J.R.R. R. Tolkien, however, turns the proverb, uh, proverb upside down and finds an equal and opposite truth. All that is gold does not glitter. In other words, as ugliness can be cloaked in beauty, though beauty can be hidden in an off-putting presence. The phrase occurs in a letter delivered to the hobbit Frodo at the Prancing Pony, an inn to which Frodo and his halfling friends had come after a long journey through the misty mountains. Riders had come from the south the day before, strange, suspicious-looking men who were now lodged in the inn. But the strangest of all was a dark, tall man who sat in a shadowy corner, wrapped in a cloak with a hood that hid his face. He was a ranger, the innkeeper Barlamin said, a solitary wanderer who came and went at will and whose business was shrouded in mystery. His presence was grim and forbidding. Then old Barlaman remembered a letter from Gandalf in which the wizard informed Frodo that he might meet a friend at the inn. A man, lean, dark, tall, by some called Strider. He knows our business and will help you. In a postscript to the letter, Gandalf inserts this poem. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old... That is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall woken, A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Who could have guessed that the Dark Rider was in fact a nobleman? Aragorn, son of Arathorn, a crownless king an ancient warrior with deep wisdom who would become a fast friend, faithful guide, and guardian to the travelers, which is Tolkien's point. An unappealing presence can conceal a heart of gold. The media and other elements of our culture have taught us to court the buffed, the best-dressed, and the beautiful and attribute ultimate worth to them. The dull, the dowdy, the homely are discounted. But wisdom teaches otherwise. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel sixteen seven. That leads us to go beyond appearance and look within the soul of every man and woman for virtue and the beauty of holiness, for authentic worth lies there. And so I ask myself, On what basis do I evaluate others? What kind of fool am I?
1: Continuing our reading from uh, the first novel in my wind series, Winds of Wyoming, we're all the way to chapter 11. In fact, this is the end of chapter 11. Early the next morning, Laura and Mike joined the staff in the dining hall. Kate noticed that Mike waited in line for breakfast and sat at a table with a group of men. She also noted he no longer limped. And everyone was, after everyone was served, someone tapped a juice glass, and the room quieted. Laura stood. Good morning. She smiled. Mike and I extend a warm welcome to all of you. We're so grateful you've joined us for a summer of serving Whispering Pines guests. As most of you know, my husband, Dan, who used to make this welcome speech, is no longer with us. She swallowed and took a ragged breath. Things may not flow as smoothly without his leadership, but we'll learn and we'll help each other. She paused. Kate saw Mike nod at his mom as if willing her to go on. Laura stood taller. Each one of you has already stepped up to the plate in innumerable ways. This ranch glows. Thank you for cleaning, fixing, raking, trimming, scrubbing, painting, grooming, mucking, and dozens of other duties that help uphold our standard of service. She motioned toward Manuel. A special thank you goes to Manuel Ortega for brushing Trudy and cleaning her pin, on his own time. I believe that little calf will be a real hit with the guests, young and old. Manuel ducked his head, looking embarrassed. Cyrus, seating behind Kate, grunted his displeasure. Laura continued, keep up the good work. Our first guests arrive this evening, so gear up for action tomorrow. We'll have a wonderful season together. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all you do. She looked around the room. That's all I have to say. Any questions? Kate joined in the applause that circulated through the dining hall. It was obvious the employees respected their boss. A man in the middle of the room raised his hand. Laura pointed to him. Hold that thought, Sean. She lifted the envelope she held in her hand. I almost forgot the paychecks. Mike, will you please distribute these while I take questions? When he came to the table where Kate sat with Tricia and Bethany, he gave the girls their checks and rifled through the envelopes again, a frown on his face. He leaned down to murmur in Kate's ear, Sorry, I don't see yours here, but I'll make sure you get one today. Ignoring the thump of her heart, she turned to whisper in his ear, smelling his spicy aftershave. Coach gave me mine yesterday. Oh, good. Glad you got it. He winked and moved to the next table. Bethany elbowed Kate. Kate wrinkled her nose and shook her head. Bethany had the wrong idea. Like Tara had said, Mike was a friendly kind of guy. But did he he really think she was pathetic? And why did he keep winking at her? Obviously, he didn't realize what it did to her insights. She turned her attention back to Laura. Laura. It didn't matter what Mike thought. He was taken. From across the room, Clint caught her eye, his wide grin sweetening the bitter pill she'd just swallowed.
0: Now continuing with Treasure Island, Chapter 8. At the sign of the spyglass. <laughs> when I had done breakfasting, the squire gave me a note addressed to John Silver at the sign of the spyglass and told me I should easily find the place by following the line of the docks and keeping a bright lookout for the little tavern with a large brass telescope for a sign. I set off overjoyed at this opportunity to see some more of the ships and seamen, and picked my way among the great crowd of people in carts and bales, for the dock was now at its busiest, until I found the tavern in question. It was a bright enough little place of entertainment. The sign was newly painted. The windows had neat red curtains. The floor was cleanly sanded. There was a street on each side and an open door on both, which made the large, low room pretty clear to see in, in spite of clouds of tobacco smoke. The customers were mostly seafaring men, and they talked so loudly that I hung at the door, almost afraid to enter. As I was waiting, a man came out of a side room, and at a glance I was sure he must be Long John. His left leg was cut off close by the hip, and under the left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed with wonderful dexterity, hopping about upon it like a bird. He was very tall and strong, with a face as big as a ham, plain and pale, but intelligent and smiling. Indeed, he seemed in the most cheerful spirits, whistling as he moved about among the tables, with a merry word or a slap on the shoulder for the more favored of his guests. Now, to tell you the truth, From the very first mention of Long John and Squire Trelawney's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind that he might prove to be the very one-legged sailor whom I had watched for so long at the old Benbow. But one look at the man before me was enough. I had seen the captain and black dog and the blind man pew, and I thought I knew what a buccaneer uh, was like. A very different creature according to me, from this clean and pleasant-tempered landlord. I plucked up courage at once, crossed the threshold, and walked right up to the man where he stood, propped on his crutch, talking to a customer. "'Mr. Silver, sir?' I asked, holding out the note. "'Yes, my lad,' said he. "'Such is my name, to be sure. "'And who may you be?' and then as he saw the squire's letter he seemed to give he seemed to me to give something almost like a start oh said he quite loud and offering his hand i see you are our new cabin boy pleased i am to see you and he took my hand in his large firm grasp just then one of the customers at the far side rose suddenly and made for the door it was close by him and he was out in the street in a moment. But his hurry had attracted my notice, and I recognized him at a glance. It was the tallow-faced man, wanting two fingers, who had come first to the Admiral Benbow. Oh, I cried. Stop him! It's Black Dog! I don't care two coppers who he is, cried Silver, but he hasn't paid his score. Harry, run and catch him. One of the others, who was nearest the door, leaped up. "'and started in pursuit. "'If he were Admiral Hawk, he shall pay his score,' cried Silver, "'and then relinquishing my hand. "'Who did you say he was?' he asked. "'Black what?' "'Dog, sir,' said I. "'Has Mr. Trelawney not told you of the Buccaneers? "'He was one of them.' "'So?' cried Silver. "'In my house, Ben, run and help Harry. "'One of those swabs, was he?' "'Was that you drinking with him, Morgan? "'Step up here!' "'The man whom he called Morgan, "'an old, grey-haired, mahogany-faced sailor, "'came forward, pretty sheepishly, rolling his quid. "'Now, Morgan,' said Long John, very sternly, "'you never clapped your eyes on that black, black dog before, "'did you now?' "'Not I, sir,' said Morgan, with a salute." "'You didn't know his name, did you?' "'No, sir.' "'By the powers, Tom Morgan, it's as good for you,' exclaimed the landlord. "'If you had been mixed up with the like of that, "'you would never have put another foot in my house. "'You may lay to that.' "'And what was he saying to you?' "'I don't rightly know, sir,' answered Morgan. "'Do you call that a head on your shoulders or a blessed dead-eye?' "'cried Long John.' "'Don't rightly know, don't you? "'Perhaps you don't happen to rightly know "'who you was speaking to, perhaps. "'Come now. "'What was he, John? "'Voyages? "'Cappins? "'Ships? "'Pipe up! "'What was it?' "'We was a-talkin' of keel answered Morgan. Keelhollin, was you? "'And a mighty suitable thing, too. "'And you may lay to that. "'Get back to your place for a lubber, Tom.' And then, as Morgan rolled back to his seat, Silver added to me in a confidential whisper that was very flattering, as I thought. He's quite an honest man, Tom Morgan, only stupid. And now, he ran on again aloud, Let's see, black dog? No, I don't know the name, not I. Yet, I kind of think I've, yes, I've seen the swab. He used to come here with a blind beggar he used. That he did, you may be sure, said I. I knew that blind man, too. His name was Pew. It was, cried Silver. Now, quite excited, Pew. That were his name for certain. Ah, he looked a shark, he did. If we run down this black dog, now there'll be news for Captain Trelawney. Ben's a good runner. Few seamen run better than Ben. He should run him down, hand over hand, by the powers He talked to keel-hauling, did he? I'll keel-haul him. All the time he was jerking out these phrases, he was stumping up and down the tavern on his crutch, slapping tables with his hand and giving such a show of excitement as would have convinced an old Bailey judge or a Bow Street runner. My suspicions had been thoroughly reawakened on finding Black Dog at the spyglass. I watched the cook narrowly. But he was too deep, and too ready, and too clever for me, and by the time the two men had come back out of breath and confessed that they had lost the track in a crowd and been scolded like thieves, I would have gone bail for the innocence of Long John Silver. See here now, Hawkins, said he, here's a blessed hard thing on a man like me, now ain't it? There's Captain Trelawney. What's he to think? Here I have this confounded son of a Dutchman sitting in my own house, drinking of my own rum. Here you comes and tells me of it plain. And here I let him give us all the slip before my blessed deadlights. Now, Hawkins, you do me justice with the captain. You're a lad, you are, but you're as smart as paint. I see that when you first came in. Now, here it is. What could I do with this old timber I hobble on? When I was an A.B. Mariner, I'd have come up alongside of him, hand over hand, and broached him to an embrace of old shakes, I would. But now... And then all of a sudden he stopped, and his jaw dropped as though he had remembered something. The score, he burst out. Three goes a rum. Why, shiver my timbers, if I hadn't forgotten my score! And, falling on a bench, he laughed until the tears ran down his cheeks. I could not help joining, and we laughed together, peel after peel, until the tavern rang again. Why, what a precious old sea calf I am, he said at last, wiping his cheeks. You and me should get on well, Hawkins, for I'll take my Davy, I should be rated ship's boy. But come now, stand by to go about. This won't do. Duty is duty, messmates. I'll put on my old cocked hat and step along of you to Cap'n Trelawney's and report this here affair. For mind you, it's serious, young Hawkins, and neither you nor me's come out of it with what I should make so bold as to call credit. "'Nor you neither, says you. Not smart, none of the pair of us smart. "'But dash my buttons, that was a good un about my score.' "'And he began to laugh again, and so that heartily, "'that though I did not see the joke as he did, "'I was again obliged to join him in his mirth.' "'On our little walk along the quays, "'he made himself the most interesting companion,' telling me about the different ships that we passed by, their rig, tonnage, and nationality, explaining the work that was going forward, how one was discharging, another taking in cargo, and a third making ready for sea, and every now and then telling me some little anecdote of ships or seamen, or repeating a nautical phrase till I had learned it perfectly. I began to see that here was one of the best of possible shipmates, When we got to the inn, the squire and Dr. Livesey were seated together, finishing a quart of ale with a toast in it, before they should go aboard the schooner on a visit of inspection. Long John told the story from first to last, with a great deal of spirit and the most perfect truth. That was how it were now, weren't it, Hawkins? He would say now and again, and I could always bear him entirely out. The two gentlemen regretted that Black Dog had gone away, but we all agreed there was nothing to be done, and after he had been complimented, Long John took up his crutch and departed. "'All hands aboard by four this afternoon,' shouted the squire after him. "'Aye, aye, sir,' cried the cook in the passage. "'Well, squire,' said Dr. Livesey, "'I don't put much faith in your discoveries.' as a general thing. But I will say this, John Silver suits me. The man's a perfect trump, declared the squire. And now, added the doctor, Jim may come on board with us, may he not? To be sure he's, he may, says squire.
1: Take your hat, Hawkins, and we'll see the ship. <laughs> it's been quite some time since we read from the short story compilation. Uh, My critique partners and I put together a couple years ago. Uh, We titled it Passageways. And in case you haven't read it, it's chock full of fun short stories, including this one by Peter Level, which he titled 18 Minutes. Now you should know that 18 Minutes is about two Englishmen on a commuter train. I apologize in advance For my lack of a British accent, I'm not even going to try to go there. Eighteen Minutes by Peter Levell I twirled my hat on one finger before setting it on the seat. Twentieth century now, I told my traveling companion who sat across from me. Trains cannot be late, and work cannot be missed. Aye, Mr. Ruddick, Mr. Derby reached into his vest pocket and pulled out. A gold watch. Durham to Darlington. Thirty-two minutes. I raised an eyebrow. Not today. He returned the timepiece to his pocket. Not with your look-alike standing on the platform three minutes late. I frowned. The thought of having a double upset my sense of dignity. I say, Mr. Derby lifted a finger, have you ever noticed how extraordinarily twin-like the two of you are? They say we all have a double out there somewhere. Preposterous. I sniffed and glanced out the window to see the station pass from view. Herbie will make up the steam. And catch three minutes, I doubted. Mr. Derby wiggled his mustache. Went not you thirty seconds late yourself? My dignity Again. Fashionably so. Oh, quite right, yes. I eyed the times next to him, but he evidently preferred to continue the conversation. Was it your wife again? I didn't reply. The train car's old leather scent swirled around us, along with a not-so-pleasant mix of body odor and stale cologne. He nodded knowingly. My wife has troubled me of late, too. Let me ask you, he clasped his hands. Is there a way to buy food if one does not work for the funds? Without waiting for my response, he answered his own question. No, to miss a minute, a second of work means less food on the table. He lowered his brow. My wife understands none of this, says telling the children the same balderdash will only make them turn out like me. She talks as if my character has been flawed by my diligence. He crossed his arms. I picked up my hat and rubbed lint off the crown with my sleeve. I give my wife 18 minutes a night of undivided attention for conversation. How generous. She wants more. He blew a breath through his thick mustache. I didn't know. He shook his head. My poor man. She asked me this morning. I leaned closer and lowered my voice. She asked me not to work today. His brow furrowed. You've lost control. And what little dignity I had. I work. She doesn't. How can she understand? My wife doesn't understand either. I place my hat on my knee. My wife is beautiful. I cannot deny it. But with beauty comes a price. Which is? She bores me. Oi, Mr. Derby jumped to his feet and stepped to the door of our private compartment. Through the window I could see my double standing on the other side. Mr. Derby yanked the door open. "'We're steady fellows aboard this train,' he stabbed his forefinger at the man's chest. "'We've jobs, you see, and to keep them we must be on time,' his voice rose. "'If all the trains were late thanks to blokes like you, his majesty's empire would crumble.' "'My double clenched his fist. "'It was my wife, you see.' "'A wife is no excuse,' Mr. Derby slammed the door in the man's face and yelled through the glass. "'Find another compartment. This one's full.' He plopped back down in his seat and crossed his arms again. After a moment, he sighed as if he was beginning to regret his words. Time to bolster the man's dignity. Well deserved, I said. Spot on. Silence regained its form. Branches slid along the side of the train as it passed through the forest. Their leaves glistened in the morning's bright sunlight. I rested my hands on my hat, and attempted to prepare myself for the day ahead. My morning so far had been disconcerting, to say the least. A figure flashed by the window. I blinked and gasped. Mr. Derby sat up, my dear Mr. Ruddick. You've gone white. I, had I really seen what I thought I saw? I, I think I saw someone fall from the train. Impossible. He craned his neck to look outside. From the train, you say? The screech of metal against metal filled the air as the car lurched to a stop. My companion flew into my lap. I pushed him away and retrieved my crushed hat. Seated once more, Mr. Derby combed his mustache back into place with his fingers, straightened his vest, and brushed the shoulders of his coat, apparently purging himself of the unpleasant experience. I heard the sound of hurried footsteps and turned in time to see conductors charge through the corridor, I opened a window and leaned out to search for a body. The pungent cloud of smoke of coal smoke wafting from the engine made me cough. At the rear of the train, the conductors huddled in a mass of blue uniforms, but they soon separated and then dispersed into a nearby thicket. Beyond the engine, I saw a small station nestled between tall evergreens. The platform was filled with constables, who lined up as I watched and then marched toward the train. "'What's the word?' asked Mr. Derby. "'I sat back. "'Village Bobbies. "'What are they doing here?' "'He stuck his head out his window. "'Think they're looking for your train jumper?' "'The thump of pounding feet again filled the passageway. "'I swiveled. "'This time, a familiar figure ran by. "'It was Rose, my wife. "'She was followed by two policemen. "'I flung the door open and stepped into the passageway "'just as she disappeared through the exit "'at the end of the car.' the constables were close on her heels. I ran after them onto the platform, but Rose was nowhere in sight. As I jumped to the ground, a bush rustled nearby. I stopped. From the branches crawled the man who resembled me, except his clothing was filthy, and he wore no hat. Two conductors came running to help him to his feet. I started toward them, but changed course when I heard a woman cry out. I hurried to the sound, and saw my wife on the other side of the train coupling, struggling to free herself from the constables who held her arms. I shouted, "'Rose, what's going on?' She paused, and the men took a better grip. My wife seemed surprised to see me. "'Jasper!' I held out my palms. "'What have you done?' "'I threw you from the train!' She stared at my suit. "'But you don't look as if you've tumbled.' "'You threw me from the train?' Was she bar me? My wife jutted her chin. And I'd do it again. I glanced at my double. He was arguing with conductors on my side of the track. I did not jump, he insisted. I was shoved. My dignity struggled with the shock of my wife's words. You pushed the wrong man, Rose. She shook her head. That can't be. I was sure it was you. Why? I asked. Why all the bother? The constables nodded and leaned closer. Obviously, they were as mystified as I was by her behavior. Rose stared at the blue sky above us as if searching the heavens for an answer. Finally, she said, You, my dear husband, are a bore. Any pride I had left was squashed like a beetle under her shoe. I wanted to object. Yet, hadn't I felt the same for her? But now... Standing on a pine scented hillside with a railroad track between us and dozens of passengers gawking from train windows, I saw my wife with new eyes. Her hair was disheveled, her gaze wild and fiery, her words fierce and angry. Rose was a different woman than the one who had meekly asked me to stay home from work. I chuckled. She piqued my interest. I liked it. I smiled. My dear... Rose cocked her head. I pointed toward the station. There is a tidy pub behind the station that serves a tolerable pint and manageable cold ham. Perhaps you'd be free to join me for a bite. What of your workday? She tried to pull away from the constables, but they held tight. Shipping will go on without me. I held out a hand. The constables hesitated, but then one said, All seems to be well, and they released her. Rose approached the train, wrapped her skirt about her knees and bent beneath the coupling. I offered my hand, all the while wondering if this wife of mine would accept assistance. Once she was on my side, she said, Thank you, dear, and grasped my arm. I helped her step from the railway bed to the lush green shoulder. That's her! That's the woman! The voice came from behind us. She's the one who knocked me from the train. I spun and saw my double approaching and in an instant. conductors and constables circled the three of us like hunting dogs surrounding a fox. My double pointed at Rose, you push me. she wiped coal dust from her shoulder, but didn't speak. My dignity took a step forward, and I followed. She meant to push me, but she shoved me off the boomin train. I pulled my wife closer to my side, an accident to be sure. I glanced at the police. Her wrath was meant for me, but I don't believe I will press charges. Rose giggled under her breath. With my arm tight around her, I pushed through the circle of men, ignoring my double, who continued to argue with the police. In a train window just ahead, I saw Mr. Derby watching us. His brow was raised, his eyes were wide, and his mouth gaped. I shrugged with as much dignity as I could muster.
0: Let's end with this one. It's When Things Go Wrong, a poem by we don't know who. It's uh, anonymous, but, and you've heard it before, but it's a good one. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill. When the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile, but you have to sigh. When care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is queer with its twists and turns, as every one of us sometimes learns, and many a fellow turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow. You may succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to a faint and faltering man. Often the struggler has given up when he might have captured the victor's cup. And he learned too late when the night came down how close he was to the golden crown. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint in the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. You might be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worst that you must not quit. And with that, we'll quit. That's it for this time.
1: Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.
2: Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.